In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those, I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. And welcome to an Arse Blog Arsecast special. Today, we're going to be answering some listener questions sent to us via Discord from our Patreon members and on Twitter as well about injuries, I guess you would say. Well, injury, player health, player physical development, rehabilitation, recuperation, injury prevention, sports science, and lots more. This is an area, of course, that football fans are very invested in. Your favorite player is out for three months, six months, six weeks, whatever it might be. Why? Why is he always injured? Why is this guy never injured? What can clubs do? What can players do? What can medical staff do? And and lots more. So I'm just going to get on with this. And obviously you need a, a measure of expertise in order to cover these questions and answer these questions properly in this subject matter. And with me to provide exactly that from the University of Bedfordshire, it is Dr. Andrew Mitchell. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, our Patreon members will already know who you are, but for the wider listening public, can you just sort of give a, an outline of your experience and, and what it is that you do? Sure, sure, that's no problem. Yeah, so um, I've been working in this area for about 30-odd years now. So I have a uh, an undergrad degree in sport and exercise science, uh, a master's degree in sports medicine, which I got studying over at the University of Tennessee, and a PhD in injury biomechanics. And um, around that, I do most of my research or support other colleagues in their research in and around lower limb injury biomechanics. I've also done a little bit of work with New Balance as a footwear company on, on shoe design, but I've got a big um, non-disclosure agreement linked to that. But yeah, <laughs> it's something I'm allowed to say, but can't really say much, much about. Yeah, so really interested in the injury side of things. And then beyond that as well, I'm a, I'm a season ticket holder, Block 129 at, at Emirates. So um, 
I'm there every week for my sins. All right. So you've you've been through the the ringer with all of us when it comes to Arsenal players and injuries and and all that. And look, this is just, it's such a fascinating area, and there are so many aspects to it, and there are so many questions that we could have pulled out. Uh, and thank you to everybody on Twitter and in our Discord, uh, our Patreon members who've who've provided questions. We'll try to get as many as we can, but also give a broad um, look at, at at some of the concerns, some of the questions, some of the things that, that people want to know about. Let's start with a really easy one from X Pavan who says, how or why does a player become injury prone? And is it just such an individual thing that, you know, one guy can pick up one injury at one point in his career and then suffer with that? And another guy can just go through his entire career and barely miss a game. Is there, there's no magic bullet here, if that's the right way to put it. No, absolutely. Um, the best way I describe this is using a car analogy. So if, if you've got a cracked alloy, um, it's fair to expect the, the car to function absolutely perfectly if you go and replace the alloy. However, if you get the mechanic to weld it, it's always going to be the weak link on your car's handling. And it's exactly the same with injuries. So quite often they never resolve themselves. So um, with a muscle, you might have scar tissue. With a tendon, you might have thickening of the tendon. In bone, you might have a callus, which is a similar thing on a bone. You might have cartilage defects. You might have reduced range of motion. And as soon as any of those things happen, the mechanics of the athlete changes. The symmetry, we always really want the symmetry. The symmetry is lost. So there's then an asymmetry. And that asymmetry is then a, a risk factor. So that all those deficiencies are then a weak link. So the weak link is always going to be the, the, the area that fails first. And in this instance, if you've got a player um, that has a long history of, of hamstring strains, that hamstring won't look the same as the, the other hamstring. If they do an MRI, the best medics in the world looking at it, it won't look the same because of the history of injury. And you and I and, and all, the, all the people listening to this and all the athletes in the Arsenal squad will heal at different rates. Different tissues within our body will heal more or less uh, efficiently or effectively. So, yeah, so an athlete can just be really unlucky. We presume that someone gets over that, that um, calf strain. Everyone just thinks, oh, well, it's fine now because you've replaced the alloy, right? It should be absolutely perfect, mm. but quite often it absolutely isn't. And it's that, that issue with an athlete as they age. While they're aging, it's going to get more um, become more of an issue because those, those healing properties, those healing powers are, are less effective. Um, so, yeah, sometimes it's just bad luck. And then with, with other times you have an, a, an athlete, a player like, like Ruziki, um, going back a few years, but... That actually was just something that the club hadn't seen. And it wasn't just a muscle injury. It was actually a bone injury at the end of the muscle. And they didn't realize that until they went in and did the surgery. So sometimes they're just really unlucky. To be fair, though, at least at Arsenal, they're getting absolutely the best of everything. Cryotherapy, hyperbaric training, um, the best psychologists, the best, um, the best medics. It's literally a, a world-class environment. So they're doing absolutely the best they can. Um, but as we as we go and talk on some of the other questions, there's, there's a lot of other stuff I think they could be doing, which might help some of the, the players. All right. we You mentioned hamstrings. So there are obviously, um, you know, it's one of those really regularly common injuries. And we have a couple of questions here about that. Um, Arsenal Yankee on the Discord said, why do hamstring injuries appear to be more to be more common in football than in other sports like American football or baseball. It might just be a mistaken impression. And uh, on Twitter, JV at Chamoyor says, uh, why is the risk of hamstring injury so high and what are the risk factors? Is, is there something specific to football that makes hamstring injuries more prevalent? 
Yeah, absolutely. So if we take those um, individually, so um, to Arsenal Yankee. So yeah, hamstring um, injuries are definitely more common in football than the other sports that, that they mentioned. Partly because it's different physiological, biomechanical, neuromuscular demands, um, different athletes, different match duration, different number of matches in a season, different travel stresses, different recovery times. So, yeah, it's very difficult and really unfair for us to compare it with other sports. But um, the problem with hamstring injuries is it's the only injury, at least in male football, that is continuing to increase. So we've seen about a 12% rise from between what, 20, 2002 to 2022. 12% rise um, in those injuries, which is which is a real concern. 18% um, that, about 20% that, one in five are recurrences. And that's something that obviously the club are, are, are doing everything they can to reduce. But within that as well, the recurrences, we know that about two thirds of them happen within those first two months returning after play. So that's something that they're really, really worried about and they're really concerned about. But if we give you an example, of the specificity and the detail these clubs go into when they're, they're training. I was talking to a sport and exercise scientist at a, a Premier League club over the week, and um, he just showed me his laptop and I was, we we're having a quick, quick read. Every single drill is broken down into, for example, um, total distance, high-speed sprints, sprint distance, explosive efforts, heart rate over 85%. The relevance to the match day, so they call it match day minus one, match day minus two, match day plus one, plus two. Um, the duration of the drill, the size of the drill. And they literally monitor absolutely everything to try and control those additional risks. Um, so so they're, doing, they're doing as much analysis as they can. And like I said, in this, in this um, drill library I was looking at, it isn't just the data that's written there. It's actually the video of the drill. So the, the clubs, uh, medics, uh, doctors, coaches, physios can go back in and say, actually, it was after that drill there was an issue. And they, they can literally cross-reference it. And they'll have thousands of these drills in this drill library. But it isn't just like they've done a, a four and four and they've used it once and they'll use it every time. They'll actually have the, the new video showing every single time that that drill is used. So it's, it's amazing the detail I can get into to, um, to kind of um, identify any kind of risks or concerns. But um, going back to Chamber Your's question, it was um, so. What are the why is it so high? Was he saying? Yeah, why why is the risk yeah. of hamstring injury so high? Yeah. What are the risk factors? I mean, yeah. I mean, just before we get on to that, you mentioned that rise, that increase in hamstring injuries, mm -hmm. which is kind of counterintuitive when you detail the level of, of sophistication that's going into monitoring these players. Is it too simplistic to say that this is a consequence of? just continuous load on these players without sufficient downtime? Yeah, I mean, the load is the load is a challenge. As some researchers say, the load doesn't really uh, influence it. I think someone in the Discord showed us or shared a paper on the in the NBA where they were saying the load doesn't make much difference. But um, hamstrings is a, is a very specific one. And someone else also in the Discord was asking about the, the way that football players run, sprint, compared yeah. to other athletes. I would argue that is one reason that football players sprain their or strain their hamstrings more than let's say American football players because elite football players over here don't run like elite sprinters, whereas in the US that's something they, they've always done. Um there's some there's some modifiable and there's some unmodifiable issues with, with reference to hamstring strain. We know the majority of the time it's the bicep femoris, so we even know which muscle of the three um, is, is the challenge. We know that as soon as someone's had a hamstring strain, they're highly at risk of getting another one. So once they've got that, that becomes unmodifiable. We can't do anything with that. But the residual weakness is something we, we can obviously work on. And it comes back to, down to insufficient rehab. So either um, not strong enough or not uh, enable, or not uh, able to get up to kind of high speed, which then results in a lower load capacity. And then as soon as you kind of increase the stresses, then the person's at risk again. 
So it's, it's almost two different kinds of um, a times that a football player can, to, can do a hamstring. If they've got that residual weakness and they get injured very early in the game, it's because there's something to do with the neuromuscular um, control or there's some muscle imbalance where it's really obvious it's going to happen straight away. The other side of that is actually that's all sorted, um, but they're just kind of getting this fatigue late on in the match. And as soon as you've got risk of fatigue or higher fatigue than normal, your risk of injury increases through the roof. But these, these, all these players have been monitored in match constantly. So I wouldn't have the opponent's data, but the team, so Arsenal, for example, would have the data in front of them, guys in the stands looking at absolutely everything. So high-speed sprints all the way through um, to um, kind of total distance covered and things. And then monitoring as soon as it goes above or, or below the standard deviation. So as soon as it's in an area where they're not used to, um, they can make a call down to the bench and say, look, someone's in, um, in either in a red zone or they're not hitting the numbers that they should be. But the risk factors also is things like excessive training, too many matches, overloading with um, with fatigue. And there's lots of talk that <laughs> this is going to be slight, sounds slightly controversial. There's lots of talk that actually it, it's more to do with the coaches and the higher level management making poor decisions in certain instances. Yeah. So this is one of those moments I kind of I, I maybe gave you a heads up in advance. There's the more and more you look into the research, that the more and more. Um, you can pull out things of interest and, and UEFA, bless them, do some good things. And they funded a lot of really good uh, research into um, elite football over the last 25 years or so. Mm. And um, UEFA did the study and they actually spoke to the chief medical officer. So the most responsible doctor at every football club involved in this study. And this was across the whole of Europe and these all Champions League, um, Champions League clubs. And they basically said to them, what do you think are the issues that are beyond the players' control that, that the club could organise it and, and do better to reduce injuries. And the three things that came out was the leadership style of the head coach is sometimes not um, synonymous with um, maintaining appropriate levels of injury or, or, or health and fitness and so, reducing injury. So does that mean that the, the head coach is maybe putting pressure on a player to come back more quickly because they yeah. need them? I mean, you can understand they need them. It is balancing act, et cetera, et cetera. But, but you know, rather than erring on the side of caution, they're prepared to take a risk with the player. Absolutely. And or what they're trying to push into training, whether they're overruling the, the sports scientists or medical staff about those kind of drills. Um, the other thing is the quality of internal communication has been highlighted by the chief medical officers at these clubs saying, you know, sometimes the people just aren't communicating effectively. And then that increases the risk of injury to the player. Then the final one, which is the most obvious one, is from top down is the workload imposed on the players. They all, at least at Arsenal, they're all very handsomely paid and we would all expect them to be grafting um, every day, all day. But that really, really doesn't work with elite athletes. Uh, we really need to look after them a bit better. But it's quite controversial that you kind of read that and think, and this is a, you know, a paper from the uh, elite, uh, elite Club Injury Survey, so kind of the best research in the world in this area. And one of the things they're picking out is the managers could be doing a bit better and the high-level coaching staff could be doing a bit better. Sure. What about the players themselves in these situations where fear of losing your place or desire to play or, you know, just wanting to be involved because you are driven and ambitious and, and you love football and you want to play and maybe you're not 100% honest with uh, the medical staff or the sports scientists. Like, to what extent is that an issue in that, you know, they can do scans and, and they can um, measure certain things. But ultimately, if you say to a player, how are you feeling? Have you any pain in your hamstring? And they say, no, everything's fine. But like, it's just, you know, it's not quite 100%, but they're willing to to risk it themselves. 
Absolutely. I think they'll do it once. And if, and if it comes back to bite them, they wouldn't do it again. It's probably based on the maturity of the player or the advice and guidance of the, the, the player and also the environment the player's within. If the, if the player feels confident enough to say to the gaffer, it doesn't feel right this week because this, this isn't normal or, or even talk to the sports psychologist or one of the other coaches, that's the kind of environment we want to be promoting. What we don't want is, is people saying, oh, no, no, I'm fine, and then playing on hurt, which is what we heard, I believe, wasn't um, – Jesus before last World Cup, Jesus was mm. playing on something I hadn't mentioned. Twenty one, there's there's talk about Ben uh, Benjamin White kind of carrying something at the moment, but in reality we don't know. But it's very easy for the teams to actually spot this. They do, they do some really simple isometric, so like tests, kind of resistance tests. You sometimes see them on their videos when they show the, the behind the scenes at training, um, or kind of vertical jump testing. And if and if the players aren't exhibiting s- similar muscular forces and responses than they're used to they're flagged but yeah you're absolutely right players will, will cover it over but the environment we want is not that kind of toxic masculine you'll be in fine sure you'll be fine kind of environment okay the the other question you mentioned about <laughs> running style i'm i'm slightly fascinated by this this came on the discord from soul and he said i'm friends with a physio as a hamstring specialist who's lectured done reports for several premier league clubs his opinion is most footballers don't sprint properly which goes to what you were uh, talking about there and i listened to um a podcast uh, last year with the guy who was in charge of physical development at, at, at youth level for Arsenal. And one of the things that he talked about were these four stages of physical development in young players. And part of it was was teaching them how to run properly and how to move. And, you know, as as this level of sophistication hits the academies, is it possible that we will see maybe an, uh, an improvement in in player injury, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Their, yeah, exactly, their resilience, because from a young age, they have been developed. So like at 13, you run like this, at 15, at 17, you know, you've got the power to do this, that. And then as you mature and become a, you know, an adult and a grown man or woman, that you have, you know, this technique which will perhaps make you a little more resilient. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's the same with female football. Once female football get the same level of support and, and insight, it's like insight and guidance from eight upwards, we're going to be seeing less uh, issues as those female athletes um, are, are kind of senior pros. But no, you're, you're absolutely right. The average football player, in my opinion, doesn't sprint effectively and they don't backpedal. They don't run backwards effectively. And, and um, I did a lot of work in American football in the US and those guys can run really fast backwards, balanced, controlled, changing direction. And then I watch, you know, Rio Ferdinand and some of the classic um, defenders. And they're moving backwards, that's fine, but they're not moving back quickly. Mm. Um, and it's something that we should definitely teach people at the younger, at the younger age groups. And if the academies are, are in, investing that time, which is really important because it's not classic time spent with the ball at your feet, um, it will make a significant difference. And it's just, like I said, it's something that's just a standard thing in the US uh, in a lot of those sports to kind of keep that technique uh, accurate and effective. To what extent do you think the... the um the fact that that uh, female footballers are maybe being uh, brought through academies at a later stage, they're more, um, they're older, um, they're not learning the techniques, is is tied into uh, the proliferation of, of ACL injuries uh, within the women's game. Um, 
There's a question from Elizabeth's Royal Arsenal for men and women, but especially women with knee injury mitigate, mitigation studies and exercises established to help drastically reduce proneness by experts like Dr. Molly Silvers Grinelli. Why are we not seeing these measures implemented by clubs to reduce knee injury? And um, you know the, the the wider question about why are there so many ACL injuries? I know there's been a, a lot of talk about this, a lot of, um, you know, there was a great documentary with, with uh, Vivian Miedema and Beth Mead, which went into this in, in some detail. Arsenal suffered four ACL injuries, I think, last season. And, you know, we've seen more of them this year in, in the women's game. I mean, is it a is it an area in which progression will be made as the, as the game becomes more... Um, professional is not the right word to use, but you know what I mean, where the structures are in place for longer periods um, for, for women footballers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and yeah, and um, and Holly Silvers Grinelli is a, is a really good researcher. Yeah, I think I think she's published something like eighty five papers in the area, so she's she's um, very very good at that. And we don't really know if the clubs are or aren't implementing these. We would just expect them to be implementing those injury prevention programs and doing a better job. We know though, for, for varying reasons, that women um, are between two and eight times more likely to tear an ACL than a male, mm. um, which is which is only going to increase regardless of how well, how good we are at this. The numbers will only increase as we see female sports participation increase. So we have to kind of take that uh, as a, as a caveat. What, like I said before, we need to ensure the women have the same sports science, sports med, S&C support and expertise uh, as, as much as possible, because what we're trying to do with the injury prevention programs is change the kind of the behavior of the human being, their mode of control, their mode of learning and, and get them to kind of react from a neuromuscular viewpoint in a mm. better more effective way to kind of stop them getting hurt. The bottom line is, as we kind of move forward and look at other, um, other um, aspects of it, is there are some bits anatomically where females and males just are just are different. Um, we we can see some really good research being done by UEFA again. Sorry to to, to um, lord them twice in one pod, but um, they started the women's league uh, club injury survey. Um, but only in 2017-18, so we haven't got as much data. And during that time, the professional, the professionalism in female football, at least at Arsenal, has changed dramatically. And I think those data over the next five to ten years will be really, really important to see how it's uh, how it's improved. But we know women have a different kind of pelvic. If you imagine the kind of put a dot on the side of your pelvis, middle your knees, and then your ankles, it's called the Q angle. Uh, and, and women have a different Q angle to males. They have different musculature around the knee. They have different levels of testosterone, which obviously helps us build muscle. There's some research to suggest, to suggest there's links with um, estrogen, menstrual cycle, and joint laxity. I mean, that's a little bit mixed at the moment, that research. But we know women land differently from vertical jump. We know their neuromuscular responses are different. So they're the things um, like landing mechanics, changing direction mechanics, um, strength that we need to kind of improve because only, only a third of, of, of ACL injuries in female football are caused by a tackle. The other two thirds, no one else is anywhere near. Mm. It's really, it's two thirds to a third. It's those change of direction landing with no one else close where the women are most often tearing their ACL. How, how different is that from men? It would be roughly the same. However, obviously the occur, the instance of it will be slightly less. So women are two to eight times more likely. So similar, similar issue, but obviously far less common. And the fact that Arsenal had four last year, that's so unlucky. It's like being struck by lightning four times in a row. The number of ACLs, so we know that women, um, that female football have a, a higher incidence of ACL, but in reality, the percentage of ACL injuries in women's football injuries as a whole is only 2%. It's tiny, mm. but it's a massive burden. Obviously, it's hugely shocking. 
the most common thing are hamstring injuries at about 12% and quad injuries at about 11 But we know now more about it because it's on TV. Five years ago, those matches would have been on TV. No one would have known if, or it wouldn't have been as, as popular if Alex Scott had torn an ACL 10 years ago. Sure. And Leah tearing, tearing an ACL. So that, that kind of uh, is an issue. But it's about, two, for female football at least, it's about 290-odd days of rehab as soon as you tear an ACL. Okay. While we're on ACL, we had a lot of questions about jury and timber. And Birdtail Bill says, what are Dr. Mitchell's thoughts about the circumstances of Timber's injury? More specifically, does he think Arsenal were not following best practices in letting Timber continue to play in the second half when he'd obviously had some kind of injury event in the first half? Yeah, this is an answer I... I'm going to start with a sigh because it was back in August, wasn't it? You and I had spoken about it four days before. The injury happened on the 12th, and I think on the 8th of August, we'd, we'd met up and had that first pod. And, and I was saying at that time, when there's an injury mechanism, so something that looks like an injury that we, that we know, even if the athlete says they're fine, even if the tests say they're fine, if you've got half time to check them, it's not worth the risk. And I was screaming at the at the TV. I was in the States watching that game, screaming at the TV, saying, cool, they're not going to let him on. Surely they won't let him on. Even I could, I'd rewound the TV and I'd looked at the angle and I'm saying, doesn't look right to me. And, and the thing with it is the worst thing that happens if they bring him off for that half a game is he misses 45 minutes of football. By leaving him on, the worst thing then that, then that happens is we can potentially put him at risk for... Uh, Another in- or a subsequent injury kind of that makes it worse. I mean, obviously the club will say, and I, and I understand that, and I wasn't there and I didn't do the tests and I, I wasn't looking over anyone's shoulder. The club will say he was fine and went to go back on. But the chance of having two ACL mechanism in- of injuries within 20 minutes of each other and them not being linked is infinitesimally small. Yeah, It was just really sad to watch. And yeah, it's um, I, I, I was gutted, but no more gutted than the player. But the player may have been having that mindset you were talking about earlier where they were saying, oh, no, I'm fine, it feels good. It's his first competitive match for Arsenal. You know, why wouldn't you? But such a shame. I mean, it, it is the story I can't remember at this point now, but is it not that, um, you know, they did the test at halftime and uh, then it came out after that, like it had been done already, that some sometimes you can have a false positive on the test, right? that the injury was sustained in the first half. So, you know, the chances uh, the chances are he would have been out anyway, even if they'd taken him off at half time. I suppose it just takes away that that kind of that kind of grey area. Yeah. I mean yeah, you can have a, like, yeah, a false negative. So like a negative test, say like, yeah, it's not positive for ACL, it looks fine, we'll send him back out. You, you can have that. And sometimes the, the players kind of um, muscle guarding, so their hamstrings kind of kick in and try and protect the joint as you're doing the test. Um, absolutely. Um, and if he had already torn his ACL in it, and as you said, and, and he'd already torn it, so it didn't really matter. I'd argue there's no way we'll ever know that the second injury mechanism didn't make it worse. It yeah. could have just been a grade, a grade one or grade two sprain as opposed to a full, um, a full rupture, which then adds months onto the, onto the rehab. So obviously the club will have had a huge internal um, investigation on that. What didn't we do? What could we do better? They'll talk to them. Um, the orthopedic surgeon, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll absolutely review what happened, but it's, um, it's like crashing your brand new car the day you buy it. It's yeah, it is a bit of, it was really sad. What have you made of the sort of continued coverage of, look, I know online chatter is just online chatter, but there's, there's 
I can't remember a player doing their ACL and people talking about him. He's going to be back. He's going to be back. He's going to be back with such frequency as they have with with Timber. And even a few weeks ago, I I, I had a look at um, Arsenal players who had done their ACLs and what was the average time in in number of days between the surgery, not the injury, but the surgery in as much as we knew when that took place and their return to first team action. And it was averaging out at about 250, 260 days. You know, sort of Callum Chambers was a bit of an outlier because it was nearly 300 days. Hector Bellerin was maybe 260, Rob Holding 260, El Nenny 250, something like that. You know, so the, the, there's a fairly consistent period of time where with all the best efforts, with all the best care, with all the best treatment, with all the best rehab, it still takes that amount of time for a player to come back. Like, uh, so what What have you made of these sort of, well, he's definitely, he'll be back within a couple of weeks. He'll be there for this game. He'll be there for that game. And are there examples of players, you know, who have come back in a much shorter period of time and then, you know, been okay from there. Maybe there's somebody who's come back a bit quicker and and suffered the consequences and done his hamstring a few weeks later because the, you're you're overcompensating because you're back a bit quick. Yeah, absolutely. So um, probably ten or twenty times over that last few months, have I started responding to a tweet or t- started responding to someone and then thought like it's just not worth it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, some players do come back quicker. But again, if you and I, even if we're the same age exactly the same injury we're going to rehabilitate slightly different we'll have different surgeries we'll have different grafts if it's an acl it was my mcl which is on the medial side the medial collateral ligament was that damaged as well as soon as you damage the mcl sometimes you damage the medial meniscus and the meniscus is the kind of fiber cartilage rings that sit between your femur and your tib there's so many different things that you will sometimes get an outlier that comes back a bit quicker um, but in reality safe and prudent is better than quick and if you bring it back a little bit too quick, there's, there's a chance you do the ACL again. It isn't too common to tear the ACL again, but you will have other issues. Um, that, that, so like a secondary injury after the surgery, that if, if the person's come back a little bit too quick. The most important thing is that the player has to be absolutely physically and psychologically prepared. And one of the questions in the, in the Discord was about the psychological side of it, which I think we can get to. Mm. Um, but you have to train the athlete to be used and comfortable to do that injury mechanism again. So if it's landing from a jump in a penalty area, they've got to be confident doing that if they're centre-half. If they're a little Cesc Fabregas, um, little agile, little midfielder, that change in direction, they've got to get they've got to get um, back to normal as well. So it isn't just the, is everything strong and symmetrical? It's actually, are you ready from a mindset viewpoint to kind of take contact, if it was a contact type ACL, uh, and, and do the job properly there. But it, it's such a huge challenge. You're right, anywhere from 250, some, some people a little bit quicker, up to three. Um, but again, it, it, in, in, re- in previous years, you'd have had a donor site as well. So you'd have had a little bit of your hamstring taken out of the other leg, or you'd have had the central third of your patella tendon taken out. So that had to heal as well. Mm. Like recently, in, in more recent years, have um, people been using like kind of donor ACLs from cadavers and, and such like. Um, but then you'd have two things to rehabilitate from, which is why nowadays it does look a little bit quicker. Um, and then they're getting all of the other things like um, hyperbaric chamber. They're getting um, you know, uh, the zero G treadmill. So they're kind of sure. getting a little bit, of, a little bit of work there. But yeah, they're, they're supported so well. But in reality, the club can do everything they can, but still got to go to the player's mindset. The player's still got to do their, their bit of the grafting. 
Were you surprised to read a question from Lord Marcus, you know, about the injury to Lissandro Martinez uh, last week for Manchester United? A c- kind of similar situation to Timber in that it looked really obvious that he'd done himself some damage on the pitch. You can always tell, I think, from a player's reaction. Uh, some players are a little bit more prone to histrionics and others, right? Yeah. Oh, look, the famous Olivier Giroud finger waggle of impending doom, and then he's up running around again. But when a player goes down clutching his knee with two hands, you're like, oh, that's not good. And then they they sort of you know let him play on, and he went down again. He's He's got to go off. Like, yeah. in terms of the decision-making process there, you know, should there be somebody just saying, that's it? You've got to get off. Should it be the player? You know, does it come back to what you were saying about the environment in which they're operating? That, you know, he's just come back from an injury, so maybe he feels like he owes the club or owes the team something. But yeah. but ultimately, there, there's got to be somebody saying, look, they might not be that serious, but it's the it's there's half an hour left to play. Let's err on the side of caution here. Yeah, you, you want someone to make a sensible decision, don't you? The... Um the lead physio or the doctor will make the, the the decision as to are you injured? Yes, no. If the player then refuses to come off the pitch, we get that situation where um, was it the Chelsea goalkeeper that was refusing to come off in, when he was trying to be subbed by Conte one? Yeah, was it was it, was that not to do with a penalty shootout? Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Refusing to be subbed. Yeah, um, yeah. As soon as someone's hurt, get them off, and that's the, that's what I was talking about earlier about creating that mindset where players are brave enough and sensible enough to say, yeah, this is really hurting us. You can't. You can't run this off. As soon as there's bleeding or any kind of internal trauma, you can't run it off. You can run off a dead leg. You can run off a little bit of cramp. Um, you can run off if you've been winded. But if something's actually broken, you can't run it off. It's like, again, the car analogy, the Formula One car, it's still broken. You're trying to finish the rest of the, the, the Grand Prix with it. Obviously, if there's anything, especially nowadays, we're seeing this a little bit more, if it's concussion or a threat to life, that's a very different issue. So nowadays, um, with reference to threat to life and concussion, there's an independent tunnel doctor, and in some cases also a fan doctor in the stadium that can get involved in addition to the club doctors, because the club doctors aren't always kind of neurospecialists. They're a bit more, maybe a bit ortho in some mm. cases, they're actually just GPs. Um, obviously, the, the, the club paramedics and opposition clinicians get involved in that, but it should never be the manager's decision, to stay on at least. Mm. The manager at that point has no clinical experience, Sim- similar to the referee at the Emirates every weekend when the referee is going over to have a look and decide whether he's going to call on the physio. I'm shouting in block 21, you don't even have a first aid badge. <laughs> it's, you know, what, what's that referee doing? I don't want him. I want the physio running on straight away to look after me. Um, and I think it's absolutely crucial that that we make those decisions earlier because you can save, not careers necessarily, but you can save um, availability. You can save player availability if you make a sensible decision quick enough. And, and in that situation, I hope, again, that that club will have a conversation about what did and didn't happen. But it's absolutely awful. I, it's, it's a simple yeah. decision. I love Mikel Arteta and what he's done, but it does strike me at times that he is maybe one for the kind of tough love, if you like. You know, football is hard. You're going to get kicked. You're going to get hurt. So you either get up and get on with it or, you know, you're going to – your career might pass you by in a way. Uh, and, you know, the availability of a player is a hugely important quality for a manager. Yeah, we've seen a lot this year. Um, earlier in the season, maybe less recently, but where where Bakayo was limping – at one point he was playing right back and Ben was playing right wing because Bakayo couldn't run anywhere. And he's a 100-plus million pound player. Why is he still on the pitch? 
Yeah. And fight with five subs nowadays, there's no excuse. Get him off, even if it's for five minutes. And, and if our bench is so thin that someone can't come on and run around for five or ten minutes at the end of the game, we're really in trouble. And, and it isn't that thin. You know, Reese could come on. At that point, Fabio Vieira could have come on. Um, uh, Emil Smith-Rowe more recently. But we absolutely should be making better decisions um, to just get those players off sooner. It's, it's too much of a risk. Mm. It's yeah. very simple for me. We have another question about uh, Thomas Partey um, who, from MG Anderson, who says Partey was an Iron Man at Atletico. Now he's played less than half of the games during his time at Arsenal. Is that just a function of age, bad luck, or were Atletico doing something that that Arsenal aren't? Yeah, I had a, had a look at the data for this because I I was under that impression that he was an Iron Man as well, and that's what you hear from the press and what you hear from um, kind of. For Arsenal social media but I actually had a look at it and in the six years at, at Atletico he played four seasons where he played about 30 games which isn't loads and the other two seasons were 13 and 16 so he's not as much of an Ironman as we think and since he's been at Arsenal these are these are league games by the way since he's been at Arsenal he's done 24, 24, 33 and then this year four matches with a grand total of 250 minutes mm. so I don't think he was as much of an Ironman however we shouldn't also deny that the, the Prem and the La Liga are so different. Obviously, you, you lived over there, you watch a lot more La Liga than I've done. But there's a, there's a number of tough games a year. But when you're playing away at Benidorm, isn't the club, but I'm thinking... Yeah, I know, what you mean. I know what you mean. If you're playing away at Benidorm, it's slightly different than away at Burnley, where you're, where those guys are all fit. They're all strong. In, in the Premier League nowadays, there's no unfit players. Tactically, obviously, teams are different and technically. But... Um, but fitness-wise, these guys are all super fit. They're all running around. Um, the in-game differences compared to La Liga, distance run, high-intensity sprints, how many changes of directions, even the tactical and positional responsibilities are so different that you can't really compare it. It's, uh, it's As soon as you came to us, you always have to start with a clean slate. Okay. Um, Raisins with an E on the Discord said, as sports medicine has improved, are you seeing a change in the types of injuries that, that players are suffering? So an improvement here, an improvement there, and then you realise, well, there's something else going on. Yeah. I mean, we're not seeing a change in the injuries. That They're pretty consistent, at least in male football. Um, we're, we're seeing a slow slow increase, actually, in, in hamstrings. But the overall number of injuries... Um, are pretty consistent because we're seeing less of the other injuries whilst hamstring injuries are slowly increasing. But what we are noticing now more is the long-term deficits of football players who are our age, who played 15, 20 years ago. So in general public, only 3% of the general public in the UK get osteoarthritis in the ankle. So it's quite it's quite small. In retired football players, it's 9%. And they're getting that at, at the age of 50. So they're getting it earlier than, than the other people who are getting um, than the general public who are getting osteoarthritis. And that's as a result of ankle sprain. We know more and more people who have ankle sprain um, can develop a condition called uh, chronic ankle instability or functional ankle instability, where you kind of step off the curb and your ankle goes a little bit. Mm. You don't feel like you sprained it, but you feel like, oh God, that went a little bit. Yeah. And, and if you have that, every time you do that, it kind of disturbs the cartilage in your ankle. And we're seeing a significant increase in osteoarthritis, but also we're seeing the same thing in, in knees as well of retired football players. Um, no data on female football players at this point, obviously it's a little bit early in that that cycle, but Lee Dixon had his knee, knee um, replaced middle of COVID, I think. Um, Didn't he so just have one the other week as well? I think he had a, a, a one replaced there. The other one may be replaced. I think I saw on his Instagram anyway, he certainly uh, looked like that was happening. Yeah, so knee replacements. 
Uh, Canberra Gunner on the Discord says, why are clubs not more open and honest with injury history and rehabilitation process? Obviously, there's a base level medical privacy, which must be respected if that's the player's wishes. But it sometimes feel, feels like managers could make less of a rod for their own back if they opened up about the circumstances surrounding a player's non-selection or low minutes, thinking of Emile Smith-Rowe in this context, for example. I, I think this is really interesting as well because... You know, that there are cultural differences. I know that in American sports, for example, they're much more open with the kind of um, injury information that they give out, with the kind of language that they use as a kind of prescribed language, which tells you about these injuries. But I think in 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 football, you know, Mikel Arteta, as we know, does not want to give anything away. He doesn't want to tell you, uh, sitting at his press conference, that 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 Gabriel Jesus is fit or not fit. He he wants to leave that that um, bit of uh, doubt in the the mind of a, a, an opposition manager. And I wonder as well, are there financial uh, aspects at play here, where if you detail every last a bit of a player's injury history, you know, if a club is looking to buy a player and they're going, well, yeah, we'll take a million off for that, two million off for that, you know, that that might be a, a factor in why so much of this information is obscured, even if for us as fans, we might like to know a bit more. Yeah, I've been not, um, I've been nodding through the whole of that um, that question because everything says absolutely right. Um, it's the responsibility of teams in the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball. They have to uh, announce when players are injured um, on the injured um, on the injured reserve, or, or used to be called the disabled list in baseball. It's now called the, the um, injured list. Um, but you know, you're absolutely right. It's their responsibility. They have to do it, and they have to actually kind of start adjusting people's contracts if they're on that for too long, and if they get injured. And it's nothing to do with football or, or the sport they play. It affects their contracts. So they're much more on it. I mean, I think with with Mikel Arteta, it's not giving anything away to opponents. The quick answer as to why he doesn't give information out is because he doesn't have to. And he doesn't feel like he should. And I get that in some ways. The national teams are listening. The potential purchasers are listening. Agents are listening. Um, scouts are listening. Maintaining player values, exactly correct, as you say. Going back to the car analogy, which is, you know, how many miles it got on it? Oh, well, okay. Gosh, been, only been only had a few dents on it, and it's a, it's the same thing. There is some aspect with reference to player confidentiality, and we are seeing some players wanting certain information released um, about certain things. That one um, one player was it Brentford actually wanted these um, kind of his mental health break kind of made made aware or made clear, which is really positive. I think it was uh, Burnley, a uh, guy. Yeah. I think it was Lyle Foster at Burnley where they w- they went public with that, and we'll come to the mental health aspect now in a minute. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really good. In reality, it's just easier for the managers to to not engage and avoid the topic. They just they just don't want to tell us. It's not them. Sometimes I think yeah. it could be to do with the is it is it is the player listening um, and is, is Mikel Arteta saying something to the player by either saying something or not saying something. He's a complex character. What about this one uh, from Twitter from Paul EWH, who says, when does a niggle become an injury? Because no player is playing without some sort of pain or some sort of ache or strain or, or what have you. You know, when you train six days a week, when you play, you know, maybe two, three matches a week, there is a physical cost. Even when you're, a, you know, a much younger man than, than we are, you still feel the effects of that. So, you know, at what point does something that is manageable become unmanageable? Is it a yeah. pain thing? Is it a is it a is it a, just a physical restriction thing? Does it become a, a precautionary thing? 
Yeah, it, it would change on the um, type of tissue that's injured and the, therefore the type of injury. But in reality, there's three different um, aspects to it. There's the kind of mild injury where you can kind of stay and play, you can kind of carry on. Um, then there's a moderate injury, which is then causing some form of absence to um, availability. So you're not going to play. And then severe, which is obviously like an ACL type injury, which is the, this is going to potentially have long-term effect for this guy as a, a, a an athlete and a professional athlete at that and, and be a human being mm. might get osteoarthritis. But the difference between a kind of niggle and proper injury is very subjective. Some people will have a high level of resilience and they'll just um, kind of compartmentalize that and just move on and, and, and be okay. But if we can kind of explain it to players, as soon as there's any equivalent of bleeding, so as soon as you've torn a muscle, even if it's a few muscle fibers, that's some form of injury. Um, whereas some tightness might be, you know, some really, really hard massage, uh, kind of um, an elbow into the, into the hamstring or into the, um, the, the, the glutes to kind of get that pain away. You can probably, you can probably manage with, but mm. yeah, so it's, it's just really subjective at, at that kind of that final level. Most athletes are playing with some form of, at this time of the season anyway, some form of things they're keeping an eye on. But but their S&C programme, their strength and conditioning programme will have preventative aspects of that. So if I'm playing with a, at, at the end of a game, maybe my left hamstring is always a little bit just tighter and a bit sore, more sore than the other one. I'll be doing more work on that hamstring as part of the process. Mm. I remember the, the comments from Rob Holding about Ben White, um, where he called him a mentality monster. Where he, according to Rob Holding anyway, he played at Newcastle away in the season where we were on the Amazon documentary with a grade two or three hamstring strain. Easily is what Rob Holding said. But he went out there and he played. He's a mentality monster. I don't know how he does it. It's mental. He'll be in so much pain, but he'll just trigger into game mode and play. He'll run through a brick wall for you, which, you know, those are all qualities that people go, that's fucking crowded. You love a guy who who, yeah. who is that. But there's a common sense aspect to that too, which is like, you shouldn't be out there with a grade two or a grade three hamstring strain. So, you know, it's an individual thing, isn't it? A player's ability to to be able to, to deal with that. I mean, I think we saw that night that Ben White was, was was um he was not he basically wasn't able to run by about an hour in and it, it ultimately cost Arsenal and and there is a you know there is a, an aspect to this where the squad is small it's thin if you have a guy who's willing to put his body on the line for you because you don't have anyone else who can play that there's something obviously positive about that but it's a situation where um, I think it probably brings into into sharp focus your squad building and your squad depth. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I can't recall whether Ben actually played the next game. I don't know what the long-term implication was. That. I'd have to look that up to see if he was actually in any shape to play the next game. I think if if it's Champions League final or, you know, it's, it's Anfield 89 away, you do your best and you play, especially nowadays with five substitutions, you could afford that. But if it's gonna if it's gonna have a long term implication, that's the challenge. And I think some of the questions in the in the, the the Discord was also people saying like, if you're not fit, how are you on the bench? And I think it's it's just careful or we need to be careful for people to understand the difference between being on the bench fit and being match fit mm. and all the kind of different derivatives in between. So normally return to play, you need to be able to manage seventy five percent of the capacity of rehab uh, sorry, of training. So that doesn't mean you can only do 75% of the activities. 
and these 25 you can't because they hurt it means that if they're doing a 60 minute drill cv wise you can maybe manage 45 or you can maybe manage 50 sure and i think that's where some people get confused well if he's on the bench why can't he start it might be because he's not match fit and we know we're only getting 20 minutes out of him or we've had some examples recently where um arteta's brought people on for six minutes next game 15 next minutes 25 and then sometimes kind of even a sub at half time because you can do that with the five subs um so just because someone's on the bench, we can't assume that they're actually 100% fit. I was always, that sports scientist at a Prem Club I was talking to in the week also said to me that, that sometimes managers um, put players on the bench, that even if they're in full kit, that absolutely are not coming on the pitch. They just want the opposition manager to think, oh, oh crap, they've still got Leo Trossard or, or Gabby yeah. Martinelli. And the player knows he's not coming on the pitch. And even sometimes the warm-up, they're just told, be careful, like, mm. don't do anything silly. Um, so that hard we, when we see the bench or, or, or the squad come out and we kind of go oh, wow he's on the bench sometimes he's never coming on yeah I mean the the next game after that Newcastle game was uh, the final game of the season Arsenal beat Everton 5-1 um, Cedric played at right back rather than Ben White he actually scored that day so yeah, so, yeah, so there Cedric, you go grand a week. yeah um, I mean the, the 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 example that's sort of in the in the focus at the moment, I suppose, is Michael Olise, who who was brought on by Roy Hodgson at three 0 down away at Brighton, and everyone's going, "What are you doing?" Yeah. You know, th- that's another one where he's only just back from a hamstring strain and a very serious hamstring strain, not a like three weeker. He was out for a couple of months, picked up a bit of a strain again. I mean, is this another one where? You know, you could point the finger at Roy Hodgson. You could point the finger, uh, finger at the medical team. You could point the finger at the player. That that maybe there has to be a collective um, responsibility. Yeah, I think in that situation, it's the player will always say they're ready, um, that they'll want to play, especially in a game um, where they. That, that obviously that Crystal Palace Brighton game is a, is, is a big thing. Mm. Um, the, the the challenge here is that. He shouldn't be on the bench if he's at high. Like if he is at high risk, if he's if there's if we're not sure whether we should be playing him, he shouldn't be on the bench. So so like I said earlier, with the seventy five percent, he should be he should be available to play. However, going back to a point we spoke about earlier in, in the pod was that sixty percent of the injuries after coming back for a hamstring is in that first month to two months. It's when De Bruyne got hurt, and quite often it's actually worse than the one they're coming back from. So if they're coming back from a grade two. It's, it's quite often it's a grade three, so it's actually it's actually worse. Like so, I, when I saw him on the bench, you think, "Oh wow, he must be making good progress. He's, he's clearly nearly there." Um, I don't know how quickly he got hurt um, after he came on, but, um, mm. but it, it's it's such it's such a shame. So I know um, a few other questions in the Discord were about like oh, we're actually looking at him. Is that not something we should worry about? Yeah, I'd keep an eye on that because that's that's a significant number of. Um, kind of grade two, grade threes in a, in a shortish period of time. Yeah, at a very young age as well, at yes. 22. I mean, there are players, of course, who, who, who suffer from injuries during the early stages of their career um, and, and get beyond that. I'm thinking Gail Clichy was one of those who, who had a lot of injuries when he was young. But then you have players like Michael Owen, like Ryan Giggs, who, well, I mean, Giggs went for forever, really. But, you know, where they do have these hamstring injuries at a very young age, and it, it clearly becomes uh, debilitating for them. I wanted to ask you, um, I couldn't find a question about this, but I'm sure there was one, so apologies. But, but the idea of periodization, where a manager using players from the bench to sort of keep a a rhythm. I'm thinking of the PSV game this season where Arsenal had already qualified top of the group 
and there were a couple of young players on the bench and everyone was like, oh, we've got to see these young players. This is their chance. The group is one. You know, it doesn't matter if we beat PSV or not. And Mikel Arteta put on Ben White, and Martin Odegaard, and then he put on Declan Rice, and then he put on Gabriel Jesus and Emile Smith-Rowe with a few minutes to go, and everyone's going, well, why couldn't you give those minutes to a young player? Is, you know, this idea of, of keeping players, I mean, is there any benefit to a player in coming uh, in coming on with six or seven minutes to go when they could just sit on the bench and it wouldn't make any massive. I mean, is there anything to that, that, that continued yeah. involvement is important for their availability? And does it need to be maybe a bit more than just like, all right, you're on the 89th minute. Um, you know, if you give a player half an hour, you could make, you know, much better argument that there is, there is a, a benefit to that. Yeah. It, I mean, it ticks lots of boxes and you, you and James and, and other um, colleagues in the pod have talked about you know, how much are our younger players worth if we sell them with eight, substitute caps in the in the prem and maybe two um, little little one outs in the in the champions league compared to compared to none lino susa is an example you spoke about i think in last week's pod so you could argue that those players are absolutely beneficial i think again we're talking earlier about Mikel's kind of attitude and approach and that seemed like an obvious time to kind of give some players a bit of a run out do you need to risk some of the other guys uh, in a match like that but obviously he just likes to win um there is something to be said, though, for kind of giving people little runs off off the bench for their health uh, and their kind of availability as a player because there's a really high risk of injury if you play too much football. There's a really high injury, high risk of injury if you don't play much football and then we suddenly throw you on, which mm. is why I was so pleased I'm touching wood. I was so pleased when Georgie played the whole of the game on the weekend. He was exhausted by the end of it, but you looked at that and said, actually, that's pretty good. He hasn't played, I would guess, a full game to, to that level of intensity for a long time. Mm. So that was amazing. So he... in. For him, as an example, he was in a significant red zone at that, in, in, that, in that game um, and doing the amount of running that he would have done. But yeah, so it, it's a perfect example when you can get um, uh, some minutes into those guys and be interesting one day to kind of find out Arteta's mentality on why he didn't do that. I mean, obviously, they have to be ready. You can't bring on a... Yeah, you know, just, Fabregas okay. looked fine at 15 because yeah. he was a, a quality football player um, or Clichy when he's younger or, or Ashley Cole. They, they've got, they can't come on and be um, a significant weak link. That's the only problem. Uh, let's do a couple of quick ones just to sort of uh, finish us off here because um, we, we've done quite a bit. Um, Sir Simon King on the Discord says, how annoying is it for medical staff when players take on personal trainers and regimes that haven't been checked and approved? And there have been a few examples of, um, you know, players who have sustained serious injuries and then they get a personal trainer and there's this conflict perhaps between what the club are doing and what this personal trainer is doing. And, you know, I think there are levels of expertise and I'm not, you know, doing down anybody who is a personal trainer or anything like that. But within the the very specific context of Premier League football, uh, it must be a frustration at times, I guess, for medical staff when there is an external factor that they can't control and and it's, you know, being bought and paid for by a player. Yeah, in a perfect world, they wouldn't want anyone else to touch their players, even international, when they go send them away. You'd want, in a perfect world, to be able to send a physio to keep an eye on all your athletes, all the different um, international trips and, and competitions. It, it really doesn't work because you don't know um, the level of insight that player has. I know, um, again, uh, s- some Prem players that go away when they have some time off and go to Aspatar, which is a the sports science, uh, look it up on the internet, it's, it's fascinating. It's over in the Middle East. It's a kind of a sports science hub um, loads of really, really good expertise. But when that player, um, we've got some examples, when the players come back, they kind of then say, well, at Aspatar, I was given this. 
And then the clubby, they don't have those facilities, don't have that um, equipment, don't have um, or don't even have the mindset to want to use that equipment. And then there's a little bit of controversy. And a, a lot of the stuff the guys do, um, they'll be going to, to known entities. So it isn't as bad. So they'll at least the club will at least know who they're um, spending that time with. But in a perfect world, you absolutely wouldn't want it. You wouldn't want it to happen. Uh, all not right. At all. Here's one uh, from Twitter from Wickens, who's at Ballistics, who says, is there any research or data on players cooling down during lengthy VAR checks and then getting injured as the match restarts? And I, I just a little addition to that, and maybe it's too soon because this is maybe the first season where we are seeing... 100 minute, 105 minute, sometimes 110 minute matches because you're getting 10 minutes of injury time at the end of the first half, 10 minutes of injury time at the end of of the second half. Is that something that clubs are going to have to be mindful of, particularly in this five sub era where, you know, you could make a change with what looks like 10 minutes to go, but there's still 25 minutes of, of actual game time? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's also making it difficult for sports scientists to compare numbers year on year because you can't really compare it with previous games where we went away to Anfield, how much did our central midfielder run because the duration of the game is completely different. Um, there's no research as yet that I've seen that talks about the effects of cooling down with reference to VAR. You could argue it's probably similar when there's significant injury incidences. So um, that the information will be there. It will just be very, very difficult to pick it out and for us to kind of uh, do anything with it. Obviously, Arsenal use it. Mikel uses it as a, a rehydration, quick quick, um, mm. quick team talk. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen any information that kind of that, that would suggest it's increasing risk of injury. Um, you do sometimes wonder where, let's say there's a VAR check and there's an injured person at the same time. The longer that VAR check goes on or the longer the physio is with the, the injured person, the, sh- the better it is for the, the substitute coming on to get ready to come on. Because sometimes it's completely the guy that wasn't warming up and it's someone else suddenly putting tracksuit, yeah. taking the tracksuit top off or looking for the shin pads like Arshavin did that time, couldn't find them. Um, <laughs> so in some instances, that delay is actually, um, yeah, don't don't rush Gary Lewin, as it were. Um, yeah. we, we need a little bit of time to get whoever ready. Um, ready to come on. What What about, I mean, this is in the news today, obviously the, the IFAB suggestion about blue cards and sin bins. Mm-hmm. What, what might that entail for a player who is involved in a high intensity game and then sidelined for 10 minutes and then has to go back on to a pitch? I mean, there would have to be surely some kind of um, I mean, the, you, you know the way when a player gets sent off, they have to go all the way down the tunnel. They can't even go on the bench. Yeah. If a player is sin-binned, w- where do they go? What will they do? And what risk uh, is there to that player if they're just sort of there cold and then they have to come back on? Yeah, it's a, it's a real concern. First is a football fan because it's another layer of complexity. And- yeah vaguely for the referees but um i think i think what we'll see is we'll go back to do you remember palace used to have um exercise bikes for their subs to warm up on mm. the sideline we'll go back to something like that similar to rugby um you have to allow that player the ability to stay warm um whether they do that in the tunnel some clubs um, um some clubs have that space but a lot a lot of premier league clubs especially the newly promoted there's no space for that mm. um it's, it's gonna be very tight on the sideline there's no space in the tunnel some of the tunnels are too tight um, I've got no idea where they'd actually put that in, but you'd need the the PFA would be quite strong about that, and you'd need a, a way for the players to stay uh, yeah. healthy, to stay warm, to stay to, to to not have an increased risk of injury as a result of the 
meddling of the referee with the blue card. Yeah, and finally, I, I just like this question. We've kind of talked about it, but uh, Sir Reese Wells on Twitter, who's at Strings and Dink, says there's a lot of focus on the increasingly packed football calendar and the elevated risk of injury it brings. Just how serious is the overplaying problem, and is it more or less serious than over celebrating? <laughs> I saw this; it really did make me laugh. Um, I mean, overplaying significant. We, we need to um, we need to keep on it. Players are playing too uh, too many games, and UEFA and FIFA are doing everything they can to increase the number of games. Um, so that's that, that's um, going to continue to rise until the players, I think, stand up for themselves. Uh, US sport um, uh, player organisations are, are very powerful, and it doesn't necessarily seem like the the PFA or, or the football equivalents are as strong and stand up to the to the leagues as, as well as they should, perhaps. Um, the over-celebrating, let's not forget that um, Tony Adams broke um, <laughs> broke an arm of a, of a teammate in a, in a, a, a celebration. So um, that hasn't been re... Um, uh, what's the word? Resurfaced by the, yeah. the celebration police. But um, yeah, it, it's going to happen. Someone's going to do something silly and then the celebration police can be all over it saying, see, you shouldn't. You shouldn't jump in the crowd. Martin Odegaard is out of the weekend's game because he's uh, he's got like uh, a strain of his index finger from taking too many pictures, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is it, can I just say what? There was one more question I thought was really sure. interesting. And it was from um, SoCal Ben on, or SoCal Ben on. Oh, the, yes. Uh, that's, sorry, I didn't mean to get to that one. Yeah. Um, so regards mental health and especially when twinned with a physical injury, so an injured player dealing with mental impact of large time on sidelines, what does the FA or Players Union provide, if any, uh, around support for that for the athlete and there's it's really there's two sides to this answer it's really positive so um firstly the teams have counseling and psychology support as part of their uh, their support teams um and where required they'll go kind of next level up towards kind of clinical psychologists i know obviously we've got win the dog as well but um, <laughs> um brentford actually brent the sports psychologist michael caulfield at brentford has a um has a greyhound called paisley or Maisie or something that he takes to the ground for all of his um meetings with players which the players rave about um, but I think it's important um, to, to remember that those players getting injured will get support from obviously coaches, clinical staff and teammates. But, but the impact of a former player maybe making a phone call and saying, oh, I, I did my ACL. If this happened. This is the advice I got. This is how you're probably feeling now. And kind of reaching out. And we mm. know that some of the um, ex-players at Arsenal do that. Um, but, the, but the work of the PFA shouldn't be underestimated. Um, and, and I can um uh, to say which team this is. So, obviously, w- when uh, Luton Town's captain Tom Lockyer suffered the cardiac arrest um, a few a few weeks back against Bournemouth, very soon after the PFA took um, some of their counsellors in and actually had a conversation with the whole Luton Town Football Club. So, admin staff, t- uh, playing team, so the playing squad, just say, and the coaching team, and had a and had um, again. I, I wasn't there. I, I don't. I wasn't um, part of the conversation, but from what I've heard from people that were there, said it was a really, really powerful, moving process. And again, very positive, kind of people raising their feelings about their own mental health, um, which is what we want to surface among these players. Um, also, one thing that's really important that, that, that I really noticed about that day, which, which kind of made me proud, was um, Chris Phillips is a physio at Luton Football Club. And I, I taught him as an undergraduate student many years ago, and he's an absolute star. And his, his he was the lead physio. He was the person holding Locke's, um, holding Locke's head um, while they were doing the... Um, or treating him. So his response and the response of others on the day was absolutely exemplary. And it was amazing mm. um, that the way the club dealt with it in difficult circumstances and also credit to, to both the, the Bournemouth and the Luton fans because they called a match off and that's significant. People have invested a lot of money in that day and they were aware of the human the human side of that event. I mean, yeah, it's, it's such a 
traumatic thing for everybody involved, whether you're in the stands or on the pitch, you know, and obviously for Tom Lockyer himself. And thankfully, well, I don't know what's going to happen with his career, but thankfully it wasn't a more serious incident uh, on the day. Uh, is there sort of a mindset? I wrote about this a little bit during the week, actually, on the, on the blog about this. Every time a player gets an injury, you know, they talk about coming back stronger. I'm going to come back stronger. I'm going to take all the positives out of this. And I get that completely. I absolutely get that because I, I suppose that has to be your mindset. You know, I won't let this, um, you know, get the better of me. I will make the most of my career. I'm going to miss six months, nine months, whatever it might be. And that's a lot in a short career. Professional football is a is a short career. You know, to what extent are, are um, the staff and the physios and, and psychologists involved in, in that aspect of it? Because... We know from experience at Arsenal that there are players who, despite that, despite their best intentions, who, who talk about wanting to come back stronger, they don't. You know, I'm thinking in particular, the player that struck me, you know, in particular was Hector Bellerin, um, who had an ACL injury and came back and, and did come back, but was different and not the same. And, and that sort of special power that he had, that blinding pace was gone. Whether that's completely connected to the ACL or not, I don't know. But, you know, is, is, is managing the desire to come back stronger versus the reality of you might not a big part of this rehabilitation process? Absolutely. The psychological rehabilitation is significant. You need to set goals for your athlete as they're in rehab, but they need to be reasonable they need to be realistic and they need to be attainable and you, you, they can't be you can't kind of say to the goal you'll be fine within in three weeks if you know it's an eight week uh, eight week mm. injury um so the support and the guidance that they'll get is, is essential at that point you will sometimes get other players saying oh sorry mate i was back after a month with that again different healing rates different injury different um potentially different grade of injury um so it's really really important that those players are given that support but what's positive is the kind of the mental health support, the sports psychology support in, in football in the last probably 10 years is leaps and bounds what it was before then. You know, Paul Davis, Kenny Sanson, that kind of era, they weren't saying, can I have some, I need to talk to someone. And has he got a dog we can walk around the pitch, we'll have a chat with and it'll make me feel great because that dog's there and it'll help me relax and open up and I'll have a deep conversation about stuff I wouldn't normally be ready to mm. do. That just wasn't happening. So those guys maybe in those days were turning to other ways to kind of deal with that alcohol and or other stuff. Um, so it's, it's essential that those guys get, get the right support. But equally, it's important, and you see this a lot, we see this a lot because of our international players, quite often they're sent home for parts of that rehab. Go home, get away from this environment. Yeah. We can get someone we know and trust to do your rehab back in Brazil or back in Belgium or Holland or whatever. And, and you can see the benefit of that to the player to kind of just get out of this this environment. Mm. And I'm not sure if, 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 if Drew and Timber would have done the same, but he'd only moved to London about three weeks before, yeah. four weeks before. Terrifying. It is a bit. Anyway, look, we better leave it there. It's uh, been absolutely fascinating. Again, I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Dr. Andrew Mitchell, thank you very much. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Thank you so much to Dr. Andrew Mitchell. Some fascinating stuff in there. If you want to follow him on Twitter, you can do that. He is at ACS underscore Mitchell. That is the professional account for the man who is an associate dean at the University of Bedfordshire. Or if you want a more Arsenal-focused Dr. Mitchell, you can get it at Negativo Arsenal, at Negativo Arsenal. And he's not negative. Don't worry about it. It's just a username. So again, thank you very much indeed to him. Thank you so much to everyone who submitted questions. We couldn't get to all of them, but hopefully we got enough uh, from the ones that we read out and, and discussed to give you something very interesting to listen to. So, again, thanks a million. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 